Our New Testament reading is from John 1, verses 43 through 51, and you can find it on page 576 in the Paper Bibles. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know who's the worst? People who know exactly how to get to heaven and are really pretty sure that they're making it are the worst. Uh, and standing here in front of a church talking, I probably, you might assume, think that I do know how to get to heaven and that I do think that I'm making it, or why would I be up here talking about Jesus? Uh, well, let's define heaven loosely. Let's say not just sort of that medieval idea of God's throne up in the sky or that alternate reality where God is sort of from, uh, but let's define it also as nirvana or enlightenment or a good life or, or an ideal society or a proper system of law or all of the things that people are striving for and say, like, the world would be right if we would just change this, change that, and it would be right. The way that we are all kind of striving for betterment, improvement, something better. We look around at the world, go, it's not right. I'm not right, but I'm getting there, and I'm trying to get there. And the people who have a really clear idea of what that is and how to accomplish it and really pretty sure that they're on the right way, they're the worst. Uh, and now maybe you're like, I don't, I don't really, I'm not particularly bothered by someone like that. Then it's you. Uh, if, if you're sitting there thinking, it ah, doesn't bother me very much, then, you, then you're the one and everybody else uh, it, it, it knows that you're the worst. Um, and I say that really as someone that really, uh, that is me if you leave me to myself. Um, the most in my life, the most damage that I have done to relationships and to friends and family members has been because I had a very, uh, and have had a very clear idea of how a human being ought to live and how a Christian ought to live. And the problem with the people around me and the solution to all of their problems is that they're not like me and they should be a little more like me. If everybody just saw the world a little more like I see it, if everybody just tried to live a little more, bit more the way that I live, if everybody appreciated literature the way that I do, if everybody understood God and, and wisdom the way that I do, 21-year-old me was pretty sure the world would be better if you were just a little bit more, maybe a lot more like me. Um, and, you know, even if you're not, uh, you know, the person I was just describing, then th that's all of us. I think at the end of the day, every single one of us has 
has a pretty clear idea, at least we think we do, of what, what we ought to be doing, what we ought to be doing with our lives, um, what we ought to be doing to live better, and what people, other people especially, ought to be doing to live better. Um, if people just handled their money more the way that I handle my money, the world would be better. Uh, if people uh, would just uh, appreciate art more, the world would be better. If people would just stop focusing on art so much and do something useful, the world would be better. If people were just a little more conservative in their politics, America would be better. If people were just a little more liberal in their politics, America would be better. If people were just more like me, the world would be better. We would all be better off. Uh, the world would be uh, improved. You, my soul would be improved. Everybody else's soul would be improved. Uh, if everyone would follow my religion, if everyone would follow my morality, if everyone would have, if everybody would just have my tolerant perspective, the world would be better. I'll never be friends with one of those intolerant people. Religion divides us. Morality divides us. Um, but, you know, so does non-religion. Um, Believing that, you know, religious people don't have a corner on the market of believing that they have the right path. Uh, I, have a, I have several, well, one in particular friend uh, on Facebook who is an atheist, and uh, he posted a, a link recently to an article about um, how a certain atheist organization had put up a banner in, the, in this town saying, you can be good without God. You can be moral without God. Just as banner. You can be good without God. And how it got vandalized, like the first night it was up. And they put it back up and it gets vandalized again. And it's kind of like, oh, oh, oh isn't it so ironic? Um, you know, and, but underneath that is, if all those religious people were just more like us, the world would be better. You know, we all have the idea that we know what the right path is. And we're, I'm, I'm pretty sure, man, I'm doing okay. Some people may be doing better, but I'm doing pretty well. And the more that we think that way, the more we're, we are uh, alienating everybody. Uh, we can do pretty well. We can bury it. It doesn't come out most of the time, maybe for most of us. Uh, but every once in a while, uh, it will. You may not even verbalize it, but you'll think it. That person just needs to do some yoga. It'd be better. Uh, just used to use a, a healthy recipe for those uh, cinnamon buns, and everybody would be better. Um, and here in this passage, Jesus is cutting right to the heart of that problem. Jesus is telling us uh, how he is the solution uh, to that problem. Uh, all of the ways that we divide ourselves, posture ourselves as better than other people, and... Uh, Jesus tears them away right here. So how does he do that? Let's look. I mean, let's start what this passage says to the skeptic. Uh, to the person who just maybe is sort of a capital S skeptic, but even just to have a, a person who has a skeptical mind. Uh, look at verse 46. Sorry, this, this story is Jesus calling his disciples. The, the, we skipped a paragraph uh, in our preaching um, paragraph before this, Jesus begins to call his disciples, and it says, he found so-and-so, and he found so-and-so. And here he says, uh, uh, in verse 43, Jesus, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip 
and said to him, follow me. And a couple of verses later, Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says in verse 46, Can any, he tells him, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, we found the Messiah. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, that's a pretty skeptical thing to say. And I want to say that this passage uh, encourages skepticism. Um, nobody scolds Nathaniel for asking this question. Um, in fact, I think it's really interesting to notice, if you're familiar with the book of John, how it's, it's bookended with these two gigantic skeptics, Nathaniel and Thomas. In the beginning, you have Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And at the end, Thomas. Uh, I'm not going to believe until I can put my finger in the holes in his hands and put my hand inside the hole in his side. Then I'll believe that he was really raised from the dead. These two huge skeptics kind of bookending the whole uh, book of John. Skepticism is encouraged. Um, in addition, uh, Philip's response to that is, come and see. John is the writer Philip as the evangelist uh, and Jesus as the one behind it all is encouraging skepticism, is encouraging questioning, is encouraging scrutiny. Come and see. Look, I'm telling you, I found the Messiah, the King of Israel. Uh, and you have doubts? Good. I'm not asking you to shove your doubts under the rug. I'm not asking you to pretend you don't have them. I'm asking you to come and look. Come and examine. Come and put it under a microscope. Look at the historical documents. Look at the, the likelihood that, that the people who wrote this stuff down were either crazy or liars. Look at the likelihood uh, that uh, the beginning of the church in the, in the middle of the first century could have happened if they didn't actually see him come back from the dead. Ask the questions. Dig in with us. Come and see. See if it's true or not. Come and talk to us. Come and, and Nathaniel specifically, come and talk to Jesus. Come and see. See what you think. You talk to him. Tell me whether or not you think it's true. Philip's response is not to criticize him for persecuting his religious beliefs. How dare you, Nathaniel, question my, religious, my sincerely held religious beliefs. He doesn't say that. He says, well, look, maybe, why don't you come and see. Which is exactly what Jesus said to himself. Uh, a few verses earlier to other people who are asking him questions. Come and see. For Jesus, faith and skepticism are not enemies, but friends. Uh, for a Christian, belief in Jesus is not, a, is not a leap into the dark because you want something to be true, uh, but it's a commitment to something that you have found to be true after careful examination, after coming and seeing. So if, you don't, if you're not persuaded that Christianity is true or that there's any good evidence for it, then don't be a Christian. But come and examine the evidence. If you don't know what the evidence is, come and examine it. Uh, come and look. Come and see. Investigate. Skepticism is not the enemy of faith. Um, and on that note, let me, well, let's take a look at, there's a few things in this passage that are suggesting to us the kind of document that this is. Because one of the things that, that you might respond to, to the suggestion that this stuff is actually true is, well, really, it just sounds like myths and legends, doesn't it? Uh, somebody coming back from the dead, walking on water, healing people. Doesn't it sound the stuff that you get in Homer or in uh, Egyptian mythology or in the poetic Edda from Norway uh, or in Iceland? Wouldn't you? Isn't that more like, isn't that more like stories of Thor and, and Loki uh, than they are of like a historical human being? Isn't that? Well, 
actually, the fact is, have you read those? No. Um, this does not read like myths and legends read. A person who wrote a story like this in the first century uh, in Palestine could not have been writing a myth or a legend. Um, they were, I, it's maybe hard for us to get our brains around that uh, as 21st century people because we're so used to reading short stories and novels where, where it's fiction but it's up close and personal. There was no such thing as up close personal fiction where you talked about it, look, you know, a couple of verses ago they say, oh no, it was the 10th hour, four in the afternoon. You know, you don't get, uh, you know, stories of Loki and Thor having a battle with, with giants and wolves and they says, and it was four in the afternoon when the battle started. It's just never on, it's never in view in legends. Um, I think a really uh, nice example of this that I like is from Tolkien's Silmarillion, um, which is a legendarium. He's imitating the style of ancient legends. And in one of these legends, he mentions that somebody has blue eyes. And it's the only person in 400 pages whose eye color is mentioned. Uh, because in legends, eye color, nobody cares, unless it's significant to the plot. And it turns out that the color of this person's eyes are significant to the plot. Um, you only, as, as a legend writer, you only mention things that are of legendary significance. And the time of day is not of legendary significance. The color of somebody's eyes is not usually of legendary significance. But here, John is writing stuff as if he was there. And he's claiming that he was there. He's claiming over and over again that he's telling you, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I touched, this is what happened to me in my life. Now you can doubt that he's telling the truth, but you can't say that he's writing a myth or a legend. You can say that he's lying, you can say that he imagined it, or you can say he's telling the truth, but you can't say that he's telling uh, a myth or a legend. It's just not the, it, it just, you know, either that or John invented the, the modern realistic novel 2,000 years early, and then no one, no one ever wrote one again. And it's just not, what, it just, it's just not a possibility. Myths and legends aren't in view. Talking about the next day, talking about under the fig tree. These aren't the kinds of things that you find in myths and legends. All right. Uh, so that's to the skeptic and to the believer. Uh, Jesus in this passage is, is saying, remember who found whom. And I just, I love the way that in verse, verse 43, look. Verse 43. He found Philip, and said to him, follow me. He found Philip. Philip was from Bethesda, city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, what? We have found him. Well, who found who here? Jesus, it says, Jesus found Philip. But then Philip goes away and immediately says, we found him. And that, I, that's, boy, that rings true. Uh, people who have become Christians, it always feels like you found the thing. You found the way. You found Jesus. People say that. I found Jesus. And it feels that way. And you look at the, at the process and it kind of... It, but then step back. Step back for a second. If you're a Christian, you become a Christian as an adult... Uh, or even if you, uh, you know, have been a Christian all your life, and maybe if you've been a Christian all your life, it's easier to see it this way, that Jesus found you. That when people 
get into the nitty-gritty. Ask somebody. Rehearse your own story. Ask somebody else to tell their story. How did you become a Christian? And, you know, even if they have said, I found Jesus, when you start to hear the details of the story, the, the tiny coincidences that line up and the, 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 the strange thoughts that occur to someone here and there, the book that I just happened to pick up and read, or the, the thing, the song that I just happened to hear on the radio, and the grandmother who was praying for me all my life, uh, and things come together in, in the most unlikely way imaginable. And people end up saying, like C.S. Lewis did, I was dragged into the kingdom, kicking and biting with my eyes darting in every direction for a chance of escape. He says, you must imagine me, Lewis does, talking about his coming to believe in God. You must imagine me in my rooms in Magdalen College at Oxford, hearing the impending footsteps of him I so desperately did not want to meet. And you get right into it. No one was looking for Jesus. They were running from Jesus. C.S. Lewis is really clear. He was running from Jesus. He didn't want there to be a God. He didn't want Jesus to have ownership of his life. He was resisting it with everything in him, but Jesus found him. Uh, so if you think of yourself that way, if you think of yourself as someone who found Jesus, um, I want to insist to you right now that you stop it and get yourself a reality check. If you think of yourself as having found the path to heaven that you're climbing now and believing in Jesus is step one, then you're not on the path to heaven. You're not on Jesus' path. If you think that believing in Jesus is a thing that you have to do in order to achieve your salvation, then i got to give you a reality check. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. If you have this chip of arrogance against people who haven't found Jesus, then I want to ask you to question whether you've actually found him. Jesus found Philip. And yet it still feels to Philip sometimes like he found Jesus. Now, you know, you know, it'll come to this. Here's your obligatory Star Wars week, uh, Star Wars analogy. I'm not going to spoil it. This comes from The Empire Strikes Back. If you haven't seen it, it's been out for 30 years. You're, I'm sorry. Uh, when Luke Skywalker first lands on Dagobah, and he's looking for Yoda, and then he meets this strange little green guy who's like 18 inches tall, and... He says, I'm looking for a great warrior. And Yoda laughs and says, oh, wars don't make someone great. Um, and, and then Luke finds out that this little 18-inch green guy is Yoda. And, oh, I found Yoda. Well, you weren't even looking for the right kind of a person. If you had, you tripped over Yoda and you didn't know it until he told you. Right? That's more like, that's what it's like when Philip says, I found, I found him. Luke, oh, I found Yoda. Congratulations, Luke. You know, Yoda was down there on the planet watching you crash land and had to have guided your ship to his doorstep using the force in order for you to have found Yoda. And even then, he had to come and find you. And now, oh, I found Yoda. You weren't even looking for the right kind of a person. And that's really more of what we're like when we say that we found Jesus. We, don't even, we didn't even know the kind of person we were looking for. You know, these, these people in this story, they were looking for a great warrior too. People who were expecting the Messiah 2,000 years ago were expecting the Messiah to be a great warrior, and yet he's this humble carpenter from Nazareth. And can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nothing could have been more of a surprise to Philip or to Nathaniel. Now, the, th the third thing 
And finally, the way that Jesus uh, undoes this problem for us that tears away our, our, all of our posturing and spoiling sport, making ourselves better than other people. Right? He's referring to in the last verse there, right, in verse 51, where he says, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, he's making this reference to Jacob's dream. Uh, that we read a few minutes ago. Jacob has this dream of a ladder uh, ascending to heaven. Uh, the top of it was in the heavens. Now, if you were here with us a year and a half ago, maybe a little less than that, um, Logan preached from this very passage in Genesis about how this was, this ladder, the Hebrew word is probably talking about uh, like a, a ziggurat. You ever remember that from your world history class where it looks like a pyramid, but it's like a step pyramid and it goes like this, and at the top there would have been a shrine uh, to some deity or another, and only priests were allowed to go up there. Uh, and it was the, the idea was that up in that high elevation, you were closest to heaven, closest to the gods. In fact, the image probably comes from all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, where they build the tower to the heavens, the Tower of Babel. If you're familiar with that story, if you're not familiar with it, unrighteous people say, we're going to build a tower to the heavens. And what they're trying to do, it's clear from the story, they're trying to get control over God. We're going to go up to the heaven. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And Jesus is saying, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. Now, it's, it's, it's clear in the language. It's not ascending and descending onto me. It's not they're coming down to me where I am. They're coming down, up and down, up and down on me. As if he's the ziggurat. As if he's the ladder himself. And you'll remember from the story with, uh, with Jacob that in Jacob's dream it says that uh, God himself was standing over him as he's having this dream that the image is that God has come down and is standing over Jacob. Right? Jacob, didn't, Jacob didn't have this dream, oh, here's a ladder, I'll climb it up to, to God. In fact, he has the dream of this shrine, of this ziggurat, of this tower that reaches to heaven, and God has come down to him and is standing over him. All of our... Uh, ideas about climbing up to God, climbing up to heaven, climbing up to enlightenment, climbing up to nirvana, climbing up to a good society. Jesus says, those are pipe dreams. You're never going to make it. The fact of the matter is, I'm that way, and you're not going to climb up me even, but God comes down to you through me. Now, if that's the case, imagine that for a second. Imagine what that would mean if that were true. If it were true that achieving heaven, good society, good life, morality was not something that you could achieve, but something that God has come down and given to you for free. Um, from that position, how is it possible for you to elbow your way in front of somebody else? You know, it is... Uh, it is true.
that many Christians think of themselves as knowing the way to God and that they are achieving it. They talk about Jesus as if he is uh, a plan, as if he is a set of rules to keep, uh, as if uh, he's no different than any of these other. He's no, his teachings ultimately no different from Buddha, no different from Moses, no different from, from Sam Harris, the atheist uh, uh, moral philosopher. You know, we all have the, basically the same idea of what's good and what's bad, and do these things and you'll get better. Now, people do treat Christianity that way. But what Jesus is saying here is you're not going to climb up. I'm the, I'm the bridge between heaven and earth, and God comes down through me to you. Okay. The stairway is not for us to ascend, but for God to come down. And now finally, this passage gives us a really up-close and personal look at what it's like and what happens as a person moves from being a, a raunchy skeptic to a person of ardent faith. All right, watch what happens in Nathaniel. All right, this statement of his, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It is, I mean, for a myth and a legend, First of all, you never find something like this. You don't find sarcasm in myths and legends. Uh, but he is skeptical, he is snarky, he is sarcastic, he is self-assured, and he is superior. He knows what Nazareth is like. There's nothing good in Nazareth. Uh, these are not the qualities of a person. Jesus says of him, the, you know, in our translation it says, uh, that Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit in our translation. Um, I really, after 500 years, still prefer the King James on this. The King James translates it, uh, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now, here's why guile is a better translation. Because deceit to us sounds like something that you do. You act deceitfully. You deceive people. Or you are deceived by people. It's an action. It's an action noun, deceit. Guile is a quality. Guile is, a, is an ability. Guile is more than even than the ability to deceive or the propensity to deceive or the willingness to deceive. It includes in it uh, craftiness, slyness, shrewdness, cunning. That you could be a person who has guile even if you're not deceiving people. Uh, a person who has guile can't be deceived. A person, who, in fact, we say this about a person who has no guile. Oh, the, the, he was like a guileless child. You might see, you know, in some picturesque story or something. A, you know, a person who is guileless is naive, is gullible, is easy to fool. That's not the quality of a person who's skeptical, snarky, sarcastic, self-assured, and superior. That's no, those aren't the qualities of a person who has no guile. But Jesus sees this guy coming, and before a word is spoken between them, he sees him coming and says, there's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel's response is really interesting. How do you know me? I wish that we could hear the tone with which he said that, because it could mean a lot of different things. What does he mean? How do you know me? Because he's not a guileless person. 
He's clearly not a guileless person. Even if, we don't, even if we know nothing else, we know the scriptures that John himself believes. We know that John knows about Psalm 14 where it says there's none righteous, no, not one. We know that, that John knows about Jeremiah 17 where it says uh, the heart of a human being is deceitful. How can Jesus, in light of what the Old Testament teaches about the human heart and its deceitfulness and unrighteousness, how can Jesus see this guy coming and say, here's an Israelite in whom there's no guile? Nathaniel's response, I, I've heard this preached a lot of ways, I've heard this read a lot of ways, and, and you know, I think he's like this. Me? You talking to me? How do you, how do we know each other? How do you know me? Because that doesn't sound like me. I'm snarky, sarcastic, self-assured, and superior, and self-righteous. How do you know me? And again, this really tantalizing response of Jesus. I wish we could hear the tone with which he said this. I saw you before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree. What happened under the fig tree? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, we have no way to know. Maybe it was an act uh, of selfless honesty that Jesus witnessed from afar. Maybe it was an act of deceit that he witnessed. Maybe it was only some thoughts that Nathaniel was thinking. Maybe it was a prayer. That's how I like to imagine it. I like to imagine that Nathaniel was sitting there praying, I wish God help me to do better. I am such a snarky, sarcastic, self-assured, self-righteous person. God, I wish I was better. I wish I was uh, more ready to see the good in people. I wish that I was more ready to be honest with people. I wish I was more ready to bear my soul to people. And he sees Jesus, and Jesus says to him, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, what would your reaction be? You know, let's think about something that you don't like about yourself. You're selfish with your spouse. You're uh, selfish with your children. You're dishonest in your business. You are uh, short-tempered. You wish that you were better. And right in the middle of an act of, you know, right after you have just, say, uh, pretended that you had more work to do at the office than you actually did so that you could be away from your wife and your kids for a little longer, or pretended that you had a headache because you knew that your husband would get up in the middle of the night to take care of the kids if he did, and you just this little selfish thing that you've done, and right in the middle of that, you meet Jesus, and Jesus says, there is a selfless and loving person. talking to me? How do you know me? And then he says, I saw you last night. I saw you yesterday afternoon when you were hanging out at the office. And Nathaniel's response again is, even Jesus seems surprised by Nathaniel's response. You must be the Christ. You must be the Son of God and the King of Israel. Now the Son of God and King of Israel are really the 
He's not ascribing, in his mind, he's probably not ascribing divinity to Jesus in this because the Son of God would mean the King of Israel. It would mean a human being. He doesn't know everything about Jesus yet. He doesn't know everything that Jesus claims to be yet. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus says, you're impressed. (laughs) You believe just because you heard me say that? Now, why would he? Why would that be the thing that makes him believe? Because Jesus has just told him not simply who he is, but who he knows that he wishes he could be. Jesus has just described the deepest longing of his heart, the ladder that he's been trying to climb his whole life. He's just hit him right between the eyes with it, right in the heart. Jesus declares Nathanael to be the man that Nathanael wishes he could be. And it changes him as if in a heartbeat. Only Jesus has the power to do this. You know, Aristotle had a very clear moral program for how you could improve yourself, and Buddha had a very similar one, and Sam Harris has one, and Moses has one, and Jesus is different from all of them. They are all more like each other than any of them is to Jesus, because Jesus won't accept that. Jesus says you're not going to, it's not simply that the, it's not simply that heaven is so high that even if you climbed there, you'd never reach it. It's that as you try to climb that ladder, you're falling deeper into the pit because the higher you ascend on your own moral scale, the more arrogant and self-righteous you get to all the people around you and you're just digging your way to hell. You can't get there because it doesn't make logical sense. You cannot achieve it, not simply because the standard is so high, but because the very act of success makes you worse. The solution that you need is not a new ladder to climb, but a ladder upon which the angels of God descend and God himself comes down and stands over you and transforms you. All these other people can tell you how to climb. Jesus claims that he has come down to you and that in him, God himself has come down to you and that he changes us. Now, which raises the final and interesting question from this passage. When Jesus says you, you will see this, you're going to see something greater than this. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if, well, before I say that, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, when does this happen? When does it happen that this prediction comes true, right? John's not going to have Jesus predict something and then have it not come true, right? When, in the Gospel of John, does Nathaniel And actually, it's a plural you there. So he's talking, it's clear Jesus is talking to all his disciples that are with him. You all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When does it happen? When does it come true? I will tell you, never. Uh, If it did happen, that would be something that you might expect in a legend. But they never see Jesus grow to be this ladder and have angels of God walking up and down his body. They never see it. It doesn't happen. So what can Jesus be talking about? Right? John's not going to have him predict something that doesn't come true. There's really only one thing that Jesus can mean when he's talking about the, heaven being, the heavens being opened 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He can only be talking about his own death and resurrection. But in that moment, the sky goes dark. In that moment, heaven itself is torn asunder. As he breathes his last, as the Son of God, God in the flesh, breathes his last and gives up his ghost and says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Heaven is torn open. The earth is broken apart. And God has come down and transformed us. If this is true, if Jesus' claims, if John is telling the truth about what he has seen and heard, then there's no more room. If you're a Christian, if you're a Buddhist, if you're an atheist, there's no more room for anybody to elbow their way to the front of the line. There's no more room for anybody to put on a self-righteous, arrogant posture toward another person. There's no more room for it. Because in the middle of your worst sin, in the middle of your deepest uh, bender, in the middle of your selfish moment, Jesus says, here is a sober-minded, selfless, loving person. And he has the power to make it true when he says it. Just the way that Nathaniel goes from this snarky, sarcastic, self-righteous, superior person to being a person of immediate humble faith. How do I know you are the Son of God and the King of Israel? He has the power to transform you and me. There's one other place in the Gospel of John where he talks about something coming down from heaven. And it's in chapter 6. And he's again, he's talking about himself. What has come down from heaven? He says, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven for the life of the world. And the, and the meal that we're about to partake of, Christ offers himself to us as the bridge between heaven and earth, that he comes down to us and nourishes us for eternal life through his own body and blood.